and welcome to the Strange Matters Podcast. Here at Strange Matters, we discuss everything that is mysterious, bizarre, and unexplained. I am Sean, and I will be the host for this episode. Before we get started with this episode, I want to take a minute first to say that we are very happy to announce that Strange Matters has made it to its first year anniversary. We've had a great experience in this first year of the podcast and have plans to improve and expand the show for our upcoming second year. Since we reached our one-year mark, we want to put together a special bonus episode where we talk about the origins of Strange Matters and all of our experiences with the podcast so far. In that vein, we will include a little Q&A part, so if any of you listeners have any questions for Eric and I, either about getting to know something about us, our experiences with the show, or even about the future of the podcast, please feel free to send us a message by email, Facebook, or Twitter. Once again, we would like to thank all of you listeners who have kept Strange Matters going. We are constantly blown away with the level of support and feedback we get from you all. So with all that said, let's now get into this show's discussion. In this episode, we will be talking about a sad tale of violence and abuse that sounds more fiction than reality. It is a tale about a mysterious young lady who is forced to live a life full of lies and deceit only for this life that was once so promising to meet a tragic end. It is also a story of a young boy who is caught up in a violent situation that he could not understand or comprehend. As depressing as it is to consider what happens to the victims, we can't tell this whole story without including the man tying it all together. A depraved and sadistic, abusive man who left a trail of destruction and death behind him everywhere he went. In this episode, we'll be going over the twisted family situation of a man named Franklin Floyd, his daughter Sharon Marshall, and her own boy, Michael Hughes. So to begin this story, let's first discuss what was known about Sharon Marshall. Sharon was a very intelligent young girl. She was an avid reader, a good student earning good grades, landing her near the top of her high school class at Forest Park High School in Georgia. Sharon was listed in Who's Who of American High School Students, a lieutenant colonel in the ROTC, and was generally described as a beautiful young lady, tender, stylish, and very intelligent. Nearing the end of high school, Sharon had earned a full scholarship to Georgia Tech University, where she planned to study aerospace engineering. Sharon proudly graduated from high school in Forest Park, Georgia in 1986, and seemed well on the path to a promising collegiate career and beyond. Unfortunately for her, life would not go as planned. The goals and aspirations of this up-and-comer would not turn out well, as it would turn out that Sharon's life was really just a lie. The first issue for this young woman was that her name really wasn't Sharon Marshall. In fact, she didn't actually know what her real name was. Furthermore, she also didn't know who her parents were, where she was born and raised, or even what her actual birthday was. Much of her young life was completely shrouded in mystery, as she was constantly moved around and told that she was now someone completely different. It was thought initially that Sharon was born sometime in the late 1960s, though even this estimate was unsure, as her exact date of birth was unknown for quite some time. This clouded past stems from the fact that the young lady, known as Sharon Marshall, had actually been kidnapped when she was just a toddler, probably sometime between 1973 and 1975. The older man in her life, who many had assumed to be her father, was Franklin Delano Floyd, who usually went by Frank. 
It was well known that Frank Floyd had actually raised Marshall as his own daughter ever since her early childhood, and most who encountered the two assumed that he was her rightful father. However, later DNA testing would determine that she was not actually Frank's biological daughter. It was this man, Frank Floyd, who had kidnapped Sharon when she was just a young child. For many years, there was not much known about where Sharon had come from or who she really was. It was also unclear as to how Frank actually acquired custody of her in the first place, though we now know more about her early childhood, which we will go into later. As for Franklin Floyd's history, he had a much less promising outlook growing up. Frank was raised by two alcoholic parents, and at some point was turned over to an orphanage by his mother, who ended up never coming back to retrieve him. From a young age, he already was building a lengthy criminal record. He was first arrested in 1960 at the age of 17 after exchanging gunfire with the police following a robbery attempt. Two years later, he was convicted of the abduction and rape of a young girl from a bowling alley. In 1973, after serving a federal prison sentence for a 1963 bank robbery conviction, Floyd fled the area while on parole and would become a fugitive. What we know up to this point is that Franklin Delano Floyd, a sexual predator and convicted felon, abducted and raised Sharon as his own daughter while posing as her ailing father. During this whole time, it is highly believed that he was sexually abusing her, starting from a very young age. Floyd would later claim that he had somehow rescued Sharon when she was unwanted and abandoned by her biological parents. As we will find out later, as with many psychopathic and violent people, Frank Floyd would constantly change his story and lie to get attention, and some aspects of the story we cannot be sure about since it relies on his word. After the kidnapping, the two moved around frequently to several states. The first known public record of Sharon exists in 1975 in an Oklahoma City school where she registered under the alias Suzanne Davis. Through her early years, though she only made a few friends and sometimes dressed inappropriately for someone of her age, no one really paid all that much attention to the young girl who had to go straight home every day to help her sick father. No one bothered looking further into asking why she and her father moved around so often. In fact, in one year of high school, she attended four different schools. If anyone ever did get too curious or ask probing questions to her or Frank about her family situation or her past, Sharon would tell various contrasting tales about what happened to her mother, sometimes saying she died of cancer or in a fatal car accident, and that she had grown up with her father since she was a young girl. If Frank ever felt that someone was getting too close or asking too many questions, Frank Floyd and Sharon would simply pick up and move. Over the years, they traveled to as many places as Oklahoma City, Louisville, Atlanta, Phoenix, Tampa, New Orleans, and Tulsa, never staying for long. By 1984, though, Frank and his supposed daughter had settled in Atlanta. Floyd, at the time, was going by the assumed name Warren Marshall, and his daughter, Sharon Marshall, was enrolled at Forest Park High School in Clayton County. Teachers there remember Sharon as a popular teenager who excelled in high school. As mentioned before, she was an excellent student, even running for junior class office. Jennifer Tanner, another girl at the school, met Sharon at a camp for student council members in the Atlanta area. They quickly became close friends, or as close as Sharon's father would allow. Jennifer remembers trying to call Sharon at home once the camp had ended, 
and a man answered the phone. This man said that he was Sharon's father and soon grew flustered and angry that someone had their home phone number. Tanner has said, looking back at the incident, I just thought her dad was just strict. Though initially reluctant, Frank soon loosened up and eventually allowed the friendship between his daughter and Jennifer to grow. However, he would never ease up his stance about discouraging any boys from hanging around with his little girl. Jennifer Tanner also gave more insight into the disturbing household that her friend was growing up in. Once while she was over, Sharon showed Jennifer her bedroom. In the closet, Sharon showed off a large amount of lingerie that she said her father had bought for her. According to Jennifer, Frank was obsessed with Sharon, often taking photographs and constantly going on about how beautiful his daughter was. Though Sharon had excelled at high school and won a scholarship to Georgia Tech, she would not end up going to college as planned. Once again, Sharon and her father would pack up and leave town suddenly, and whatever chances or hopes she had of going on to living independently at college was gone. To make matters worse, during this time, Sharon would no longer be Sharon, as she had to leave her old identity behind her in Atlanta with the rest of her life. Sharon had now assumed the identity of a Tanya Dawn Tadlock, and it was from here on that her future would never again look bright and promising. It is known that upon her graduation from high school, the pair moved to Phoenix, Arizona, and then shortly after that, again moving to Tampa, Florida. It was here in Florida where Sharon would give birth to a baby boy on March 21, 1988. Her baby would be named Michael Anthony Hughes, as around that time the pair once again changed their name. Frank was using the alias Charles Hughes, or sometimes Clarence Marcus Hughes, and it is said that Sharon was going by the last name Hughes as well. The natural assumption was that Floyd was Michael's biological father, due to the nature of their relationship and the sexual abuse Frank had inflicted on the girl for years. After giving birth, Sharon would begin to work as an exotic dancer in Florida. Her past dreams of going to college and studying aerospace engineering was now merely a distant memory. At her new occupation, Sharon met another young woman named Cheryl Ann Camesso, and they became close friends. Cheryl was 19 years old and also worked as an exotic dancer at the same club as Sharon. Cheryl would play an important role in Franklin Floyd's dark history as well. Cheryl Camesso had moved to Brandon, Florida with her family when she was eight, and would spend the rest of her childhood and adolescence there. At Brandon High School, Cheryl was known as a shy teenager who sang in the chorus and danced as a hobby. In 1987, Cheryl competed in the Miss Brandon pageant. Cheryl would use her good looks and dancing ability to get a job working in the world-famous dollhouse in Orlando, a popular strip club. Along with the money that she earned while working there, her father would give her some money as well to help her get a loan to buy a red Corvette, a car that she absolutely adored. This car would also play an important factor in her impending and unfortunate fate. Cheryl made enough money working nude bars between Orlando and Tampa to pay for breast implants, something she believed would help her find success in a modeling career, as she had hopes of one day posing for Playboy and other adult magazines. Just as with Sharon, however, Cheryl's future would not go as planned, all due to Franklin Floyd's actions. Since Sharon, or Tanya as she was most likely going by those days, was close friends and colleagues with Cheryl, meant that this new person in her life also had interactions with Frank. It is reported that shortly after St. Patrick's Day in 1989, 
Frank Floyd and Cheryl Camessa were engaged in a very heated argument outside the club. Another co-worker of Cheryl's came to her aid and broke up the yelling match when it looked like it could turn ugly. According to this witness, Frank was angrily claiming that Cheryl had reported Sharon for misstating her income, making her responsible for Sharon's loss of Medicaid coverage for her son. Some of Cheryl's co-workers also said that this was not the only confrontation between the two, as just a short while before this event, Frank had actually slapped Cheryl across the face, leaving a bruise on her cheek. During this time, Cheryl Camessa was living with her father in Tampa. One night in April 1989, just a few weeks after the confrontation with Frank outside her club, Cheryl was planning to spend the night with a friend. She left her house with a packed bag and told her relatives that she would be back in the following week, but told her father that she would call him in the morning. The next morning, the phone never rang in the Camesso household. Growing worried, Cheryl's parents began to ask around, seeing if anyone had seen or heard of their daughter's whereabouts. Shortly after her sudden disappearance, her new car was located at the St. Petersburg Clearwater Airport, where it had been parked since April 7th. This was a red flag for the Camessos, knowing how much their daughter loved her Corvette and insisted that she would never abandon it. Though there were rumors that the young lady had just skipped town, her parents did not believe that at all. For the time being, though, neither the Camessos or the police force had any ideas where Cheryl was, and her fate remained unknown. One month after the disappearance of Cheryl Camesso, Frank told a neighbor that he would be leaving the area and taking his family on vacation, asking them to take care of the lawn and to collect his mail until he, his daughter, and grandson came back. The family, or whatever you could call them, moved to New Orleans in June of 1989, once again under new assumed names. It was here that the story gets even more twisted, as Franklin Floyd had decided to make a change in his life in regards to Sharon. It was here in Louisiana that Frank and Sharon were married. Now keep in mind this is the same girl that he had raised as his own daughter, also the same girl that he had been sexually abusing since a very young age. And deciding to take her as his wife is one of the more disturbing aspects of this whole crazy story. It would seem to me that now that Sharon was grown up, it would be easier for Frank to do away with the old ways of having to lie and say she was his daughter. Also, considering his sexual attraction towards Sharon, it would probably raise less suspicion telling people they were married, which would cause less trouble for Frank, which was what he was all about. One day after this quick and impromptu wedding, Floyd's trailer would mysteriously burn down back in Florida. Shortly after this, Frank called his old neighbor and asked that his mail be burned as well. It most likely isn't too much of a stretch to assume that it was most likely Frank who had his old place burned, and yet another attempt to erase his old identity. The pair, going under their alias Clarence Hughes and Tanya Tadlock, moved from New Orleans to Tulsa after the marriage. Once again, Sharon worked as a dancer in adult clubs. For those who worked with her during this time, all they could say was that she was always very secretive about her background. She would claim that all her relatives were dead and rarely gave out any personal information about where she grew up or where she had previously come from. At this point in her life, Sharon Marshall had spent the past 15 years living out one lie or another, and it seemed to have gotten to a point where she would rather just not say anything about her past at all. Unfortunately for Sharon, this downward spiral of her life would soon end in tragedy. In April of the year 1990, 
Sharon was walking on the side of a street, heading back to a motel outside Oklahoma City where she was staying. What happened next we can't exactly be sure of, but Sharon would be blindsided and struck by a vehicle. The driver, an exact car, would never be identified, making this case an unsolved hit-and-run for the police investigating. After the discovery of her badly injured body, Sharon would be rushed to a hospital. Unfortunately, she would never regain consciousness, and five days later she would pass away. During the investigation, the police were told by several of her co-workers that she had been saying that she wanted to leave a man who was named Clarence. Several were concerned that her husband had a hand in what had happened to her. Sharon had even briefly met a new boyfriend at the club, whom she confided in that she was afraid of her current situation. The police considered her new husband as the key suspect. However, he did have an alibi during the time of the incident. The man, known as Clarence Hughes, had been at the motel, apparently waiting for her to return. For now, Clarence, who in reality was Franklin Floyd, was considered an innocent man and was allowed to go freely. Following his wife's death, Frank Floyd put his alleged two-year-old son, Michael Hughes, into foster care and left the state. Michael's foster parents told authorities that the boy had limited muscle control, was nonverbal, and often experienced hysterical behavior when he first arrived at their home. But soon after living in a stable and nurturing environment, he made remarkable progress. Half a year after Frank had left his boy behind, he was picked up and arrested on a parole violation. During this time, young Michael Hughes' DNA was compared to his supposed father, Frank Floyd. It was discovered at this time that Floyd was in fact not the biological father of the young child. When Frank was released from his prison sentence, he decided that he wanted his boy back and to start a new life somewhere else, as he had always done. This time, however, his plan hit a snag. When he attempted to regain custody of young Michael, his request was refused on the basis of his lengthy criminal record, as well as the recent findings that he had no actual blood relation to the boy. It would appear that Frank had run into a dead end, unable to claim his boy and facing an assault and battery charge that would likely send him away to state prison for years to come. It was then that Franklin Floyd decided to take matters into his own hands. On September 12, 1994, Little Michael Hughes was in his first grade class at Indian Meridian Elementary School. A vehicle rolled up to the front of the school, and Frank Floyd stepped out and marched into the school. He was wearing a dirty and rumpled suit. Frank walked directly into the office of the school's principal, James Davis, and requested that he take Frank to see his little boy right away. To make his point clear, Frank was overheard saying, I think I better tell you I've got a gun in my pocket, and I better show it to you. I'm ready to die, and if you don't help me, you won't live. Principal Davis allowed Frank to find Michael, and both were forced into the principal's pickup truck outside. Frank drove out into a secluded area of the woods and told Davis to get out at gunpoint. He then pushed the principal into the woods, where he handcuffed him to a tree. Fearing for his life, James Davis was relieved when Frank Floyd just turned around and went back to his truck, driving off as the little boy looked out. The principal would eventually be discovered and rescued from this abduction attempt. As it would turn out, James Davis would be the last person who would ever see young Michael Hughes. The FBI would get involved with this kidnapping case and track Frank through Texas and into Kansas, where the broken-down pickup truck of the principal was found. Sometime after this, a mechanic who was working on repairing this truck 
found a package taped to the gas tank. Inside this package were 97 small and irregularly cropped photos of scantily clad girls. This bunch of explicit photographs clearly proved the late Sharon Marshall had been subjected to sexual abuse her entire life. Several other photos showed a different young woman who appeared to be badly beaten with parts of her body exposed. These particular photographs would be the final nail in Franklin Floyd's coffin later on. Frank was arrested two months later in Louisville, Kentucky. The boy Michael Hughes was not with Frank at the time of his arrest and had not been seen since. After the arrest, he steadfastly refused to give any information as to Michael's whereabouts. Floyd claimed Michael was out of the country or possibly in the Atlanta, Georgia area. However, multiple witnesses have came forward saying Floyd confessed to them that he murdered Michael by drowning him in a bathtub. Still, other witnesses say that they saw Floyd bury Michael's body in a grave. Despite these accounts, there was no proof to any of these claims, and Michael's fate remained unknown. Floyd, however, would finally get what was coming, and was tried and sentenced to 55 years in prison for the kidnapping of Michael Hughes. Franklin Floyd's past would come back to bite him once again. In the March of 1995, a landscaper was taking a break from clearing brush along the road when he came across a human skull near a fence. Other workers who were searching ended up finding skeletal remains of a woman in an area off Interstate 275 in Florida. A team of detectives and forensic experts spent four days digging through the thick brush and muck before finding 90% of a skeleton. They also found clothing, jewelry, and a breast implant. Forensic testing showed that this woman had been beaten badly, but was ultimately killed by two gunshot wounds to the back of the head. Roots growing into the skeletal remains indicated that the body of this mystery woman had been there for quite some time, most likely six or seven years. Detectives reviewed five years of missing person reports, but found no leads. A forensic sculptor from Oklahoma used the skull to create a likeness of the victim, but no one would recognize her. For a long time, this mysterious skeleton was simply known as Jane Doe I-275. Now, as I mentioned previously, a mechanic in that Kansas auto repair found a stash of secret photographs in an envelope which belonged to Frank, and among those pictures were several depicting that of a young woman who was beaten badly. In 1996, the FBI finally connected the dots between Frank's pictures and the unsolved murder case in Florida. The FBI agents investigating put together that Franklin Floyd had been in the Tampa Bay area during the time that this mystery skeleton was killed. They then realized the significance of the photographs of this beaten woman. Investigators in St. Petersburg searched back yet another year and found that Cheryl Camisso had been reported missing and was also an associate of Franklin Floyd. To put the matters to rest on this new discovery, dental records would end up confirming that the remains did in fact belong to Cheryl Camesso. Already in prison for kidnapping, Frank would now face murder charges. During his trial, prosecutors told jurors the best evidence of Floyd's guilt was a series of photos of a bound and blindfolded Camesso. They said Frank took the picture shortly before killing her. Floyd himself has denied being involved in the Camesso slaying. Taking into account all the evidence, Frank Floyd was found guilty of murder in 2002 after a nine-day trial. The man was seen smiling and shaking his head as the judge read the final words of the sentence, affirming a jury's unanimous recommendation to put him to death 
for the 1989 murder of Cheryl Camesso. Later, during his time in prison, the mystery of Sharon Marshall's true identity was also finally revealed. Frank would eventually admit to the FBI the true identity of Michael's mother. In an interview in May 2014, he disclosed that Sharon's true name was Suzanne Marie Savakis. What happened was back in 1973, Frank had fled Florida after violating his parole and would end up in North Carolina a year later. It was there that he met a recently divorced woman with four children, three young daughters and an infant son. He and this woman later married, but in 1975, the woman was sentenced to 30 days in jail for a minor crime. When she was released, her new husband was suddenly gone, and so were her children. She would find two of her daughters at a local social services agency's where they had been dropped off by Frank. Her third daughter, Suzanne, and the young son was still missing, though. Unfortunately, the fate of this young boy is unknown to this day, and remains as yet another mystery tied to this disturbing and twisted case. As for young Suzanne, she and her new father, Franklin Floyd, were soon long gone, and she would begin to live out a new life as Sharon Marshall. And one of the more disturbing and frustrating elements to this part of the story was that the mother had tried going to the local police and FBI to file kidnapping charges. They refused to investigate, however, saying that since Frank was their stepfather, he apparently had the right to take the children. Since the authorities in North Carolina didn't take a missing persons report, Suzanne was never actually listed in any missing persons database. And because she was never officially listed as of missing persons, it was impossible for the police later on to use this as a way to find her when she was going under different aliases. While the identity of Sharon Marshall is now known, the nature behind her death still remains a mystery. Frank Floyd has always refused to talk to the FBI about her death. One of the special agents assigned to Frank's case has said, that's the one thing Floyd won't talk about. So at this point in the story, the mystery of Cheryl Camesso's murder and Sharon Marshall's true identity have been solved. But there still remains the unknown fate of young Michael Hughes. Government authorities have received conflicting reports as to what happened to the boy. For decades now, the kidnapper himself has told different and conflicting accounts on the fate of the six-year-old boy that he had abducted from elementary school. Shortly after being charged with kidnapping, Frank Floyd said in a statement about Michael, He is placed where his dad deems to be in his best interest. It's none of your business where he is, nor do I care how much any of you in Oklahoma miss him or love him. After years of remaining silent low, Franklin Floyd would eventually give in and tell the truth. In an interrogation with the FBI, Frank finally admitted to killing Michael Hughes, although he did not discuss any further details at the time. Later, in September 2014, Floyd did admit from death row to two FBI agents from Oklahoma what had been suspected for a long time. Frank describes how Michael got out of control on the drive towards Texas, and that he just couldn't handle it. He decided at that time to kill the boy. Frank said he had murdered Michael the same day that he abducted him from the school, after it became clear that his plans to raise the boy while being a fugitive from the law just wasn't going to work out. One of the agents said after the interview with Frank, he knew it couldn't be what he wanted it to be. He knew his life wouldn't be the same because Michael didn't love him anymore, didn't want to be with him. Another FBI special agent spoke on getting the confession from Frank, saying, 
he finally just turned and looked at me and said, matter-of-factly, I shot him twice in the back of the head to make it real quick. He didn't show any remorse. Frank told the two agents that he shot and buried Michael at the last Oklahoma exit before the Texas border on Interstate 35. Looking at overhead photos and maps, Frank in January 2015 was able to point out an area where he said the shooting happened. A two-day search of the 2,000-square-foot area began in March 2015 by the FBI's evidence response team, an anthropologist from the University of Oklahoma, found no evidence to back up Frank's confession, however. The search team had not actually expected to find any bodily remains due to the number of wild hogs that roamed the woods then, which would have eaten any remains they came across, even bones. They had hoped, though, to find some other type of evidence, perhaps bullet casings, a belt buckle, part of Michael's sneakers, but nothing was there at all to show any crime had ever been committed there. As it is now, though Frank has admitted at times to murdering Michael, without any proof, this can't be confirmed. Franklin Delano Floyd currently sits on death row at the Union Correctional Institution in Ryford, Florida. Frank has not been convicted of either Sharon Marshall's or Michael Hughes's murders, but is still under investigation and considered the main suspect for both crimes. In the end, this fascinating but disturbing story shows just how much trauma one troubled man can cause. It is tough thinking about just how much evil followed that one fateful day when a disturbed man decided to kidnap a little girl and raise her as his own. It is especially heartbreaking after hearing from her loved ones and friends just how promising Sharon's or Suzanne's life could have been if it had just turned out a little different. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Strange Matters Podcast. If you would like to give feedback or send suggestions for future episodes, you can reach us at our email at strangematterspodcast at gmail.com. You can also visit our website where you can listen, download, and comment on all of our episodes, which is at strangematterspodcast.com. I would like to thank our newest Patreon supporters of Strange Matters, Michael, Jose, and Els, and also Stephanie for upgrading your pledge. For others wishing to donate to the podcast, you can visit our Patreon page where you can pledge as little as $1 a month to support the show. You can also gain access to exclusive Patreon members-only episodes. For those interested, visit our page at patreon.com strangematters or visit the Support Us page on our website. I do want to apologize for the break last month and getting an episode up, so to make up for that, we will be putting out two exclusive episodes this month. And finally, we ask that for those who enjoy the show and listen to us on iTunes, please take the time to leave us a rating and a review. We enjoy reading the feedback, and it also helps promote the show so we can always reach new listeners. Until the next episode of the Strange Matters Podcast, take care, everyone.